Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy Legislation Podcast. This is Joy Mason and Triago, Managing Director of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. We are the only professional association that combines all aspects of data and cyber governance for the governance, risk, and compliance professional. You can find us online at adcg.org. It gives us great pleasure to host this event led by two outstanding moderators, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. Jerry is a founder of Buckley LLP, a national financial services law firm based in Washington, D.C. Prior to entering private practice, he served as minority staff director of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. Jody is CEO of Global Cyber Risk LLC and chairs the American Bar Association's Privacy and Computer Crime Committee. We have some really great guests lined up today and in the future, so please be sure to rate us and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. This is Jody Westby, and I'm here with my co-host, Jerry Buckley. Today's episode of our National Privacy Legislation podcast features Chet Hosmer, a well-regarded computer scientist, author of numerous books on computer forensics, and cybersecurity professor at Arizona University. Chet has developed numerous forensic technologies that are used by law enforcement in more than 40 countries and has done extensive research for the U.S. Department of Defense. Chet, in our previous podcasts, we've covered several of the key issues related to national privacy legislation. We have not yet, however, had a more in-depth discussion about some of the technical issues, including privacy-enhancing technologies. And I just made that up, but I think that we'll figure out what that means. And on the criminal side, how privacy is being threatened today. So I think this bringing in this technical discussion will be very interesting to our listeners. Let's open this discussion by asking you to share your thoughts with respect to the current cyber threat environment and the threat that it poses to privacy. Great. Thanks, Jody. Thanks, Jerry, for inviting me. This is going to be interesting. Well, a couple of things that you know we're looking at today from the threat landscape perspective, and just to kind of set the stage, is... First of all, our adversaries have become very sophisticated. They use advanced methods to attack infrastructures. And one of the important points that may not be known is the process is progressive. And what it means is is that we tend to look at breaches and um, attacks singularly, when in fact, the information that's gathered from each successive attack is built up. And so what the adversaries do is they share that data, or I should better say sell that data and credentials and methods on the black market. So every single attack and a breach results in information and data that is exposed and shared on the black market or in the dark web with other folks. So one of the problems with that is, is that as certain credentials, let's say, have been breached, then those credentials can be used in order to be able to progress other attacks. So the simple example is is that if credentials that you use, let's say certain passwords have been exposed, people tend to use similar passwords, if not the same ones for access to multiple systems. Mm -hmm. So then artificial intelligence can be applied in order to be able to develop derivative passwords that could be tried against other systems that those um, users 
have access to that could raise the level of the attack. The second part of that is the objectives today of most attacks are to be persistent. In other words, once a breach has been achieved, the attackers want to stay in that environment for as long as possible. So they employ technologies like steganography, which we'll talk about during this session. And it's used to both exfiltrate data and, let's say, exchange rotating command and control locations without detection. So the concept is to be able to continue to communicate information and infiltrate and exfiltrate data from an attack system such that it can maintain its lock on that particular system for a long period of time and continue to exfiltrate information without detection. So the application of these technologies and these advancements and these progressive approaches have made um, the attacks that we're seeing today, first of all, more successful, but also more serious. Well, can you just explain to our listeners what deep web means or dark web means? Sure. Um, So there's an internet out there that isn't accessible directly by us through the traditional ways that we do that through URLs on the web and going to certain web pages. There's part of the internet that isn't directly accessible through those traditional means. And so those that are either state-sponsored or individual hackers communicate in this part of the internet that is not observable by most people. Some organizations and state-sponsored folks can access that that information, but basically it's a way for them to communicate information in this hidden way and even conduct commerce behind the scenes by sharing and selling information using things like Bitcoin in order to be able to sell and exchange that information in order to be able to launch other attacks. So should people try to go to the dark web to see if they have any of their credentials there? There are services out there that you can use that will actually go out there and expose. A lot of the major credit card companies, for example, today will provide services to alert you if they have found information about you on the dark web. So there's organizations that have infiltrated the dark web and can collect that information. And for a fee, you can actually receive information and alerts um, if any of your personal identifiable information has found its way into the dark web. But some of those could be scammers, right? Absolutely. I'm trying to lead you into saying to our listeners <laughs> that going to the dark web can be dangerous. <laughs> yeah, that's not, not something that you should do individually, obviously. That's something right. that uh, you should leave to the professionals that can do that. And those trusted professionals can basically provide you those alerts in order to be able to let you know when some of your information may have been compromised. Right, because you can get yourself compromised by trying to do that yourself. That is correct. But I assume that the dark web is accessible to our intelligence services as well. Yeah, I I cannot confirm or deny. (laughs) (laughs) But I assume you're probably right, Jerry. All right, so making that assumption, we see these attacks that occur. And, you know, often... uh, a company or a business is blamed for not having adequate protections, and in many cases they don't. But it concerns me anyway, and I know we weren't planning on talking about this, but it does concern me that the government, which is the police force that's supposed to protect us, charges companies with lack of diligence when the police force might have alerted them to the problems in the first place. 
No, it's a difficult thing. You know, attribution in the cyber world is very, very difficult to assess. So being able to provide real evidence of that, because it tends to be fleeting, is a difficult thing to do. So I'm not defending anybody here, but I agree with you that more information and more information is coming out to from, we're going to talk about this later, about threat intelligence and that kind of stuff and how it can be used to give you a priori information about a pending attack that could help you defend against that. And and obviously the government and other organizations are providing great information today on how to advance your cybersecurity posture within your organization to prevent attacks. We're going to talk about that a little bit later and what some of the current thinking is on the defensive side. Right. Thank you. But just to set the environment stage, we have sophisticated actors. We have malware that can exfiltrate data out of systems, are often totally undetected. You can explain steganography later. We have also something I want to touch on before we move to the next area, and that is new technology areas that are threat vectors. Internet of Things devices, artificial intelligence, that kind of thing. Can you just talk about that for just a second so our listeners understand the current threat environment in its full array? Sure. We'll talk about um, Internet of Things first, because obviously it's an area that I work in you know, on a day-to-day basis. And one of the problems with IoT devices that are out there Understand that IoT devices that we have all over our house and all over our cars and all over over that tend to actually have very little security or a thin veil of security around them. They're designed to be easy to use. So they basically have a zero connection process where you plug them in and they work. They don't have to connect to your local network. They can communicate out of band from where you're operating. So if I have a security camera, I can plug it in. And sure, I could plug it into my internet, but I don't have to. I could communicate to it via Bluetooth or other technologies that would allow me to communicate with that security camera. And many of these, we talked a little bit about supply chain, come from countries that have already integrated malware and the ability to exfiltrate data that are coming from those inexpensive devices. And people tend to buy things that are cheaper, right? And because they buy things that are cheaper and there's not a lot of processing power or memory or capabilities in these devices, they have very little, if any, security, either authentication or encryption built into them in order to protect the data or protect the users. So that's part of the problem. The second part that you asked about is artificial intelligence. I touched on this a little bit. And we're going to talk about it when we get into um, the next section where you were talking about, you wanted to kind of discuss the point about devices that are being used to connect in the pixel variants and those kinds of things. And so how AI is being used there, if a lot of that data that's being plugged into our web browsers and to social media provides um, information out there about your interests, about your tendencies. And because of that, if that information is collected about you, now the AI can be used in order to be able to generate, let's say, a point of spear type of phishing toward you because it knows a lot more about you, right? So you're more likely to click on those things. So that's how AI is being employed. How do I take this information that I know about Jody Westby and basically send you a message that you are more likely to click on or do yeah. something with that will actually infect you. Right. And so artificial intelligence is being used in, in that way in order to be able to combine that information so that it can direct attacks 
afford you. Okay, so all of our cool new innovations are also cool new innovations for the criminals. Correct. I mean, remember, most of those were used by marketers in order to be able to send you legitimate marketing information. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. So now let's look at the privacy laws because they're now regulating digital indicators such as cookies and pixels and beacons. And how do these work and how are they a privacy threat? And when you're talking about that, how can they be exploited by the bad guys? Well, again, this goes to the whole point of what are your tendencies and the kinds of things that you're doing in those beacons and cookies and pixels are basically collecting information about you. And once it's collected, it finds its way to the dark web and now information about you is being compiled. And once it's being compiled, it can be targeted um, toward you. Let me give you an example that happened several years ago, but it's such a great example of how this works. Several years ago, there was um, something called Operation Shady Rat that occurred. And Shady Rat was interesting because it used information about folks that attended specific technical conferences. And it had collected the attendee information from those conferences and sent out to those attendees a list of those folks that they attended the conference with. So it was a spreadsheet that they wanted to have so they had access and they could communicate to their peers. Well, it was so well done that that information was sent out, but it was sent out in a spreadsheet that had a Trojan built into it. So mm -hmm. when folks opened that spreadsheet, mm -hmm. right, their systems became infected. And to make matters worse, going back to some of the things we talked about earlier, this was one of the first advanced persistent threats that were out there because it actually utilized things like steganography to both infiltrate and exfiltrate information out of the organization and make the Trojan and the attack stick. So it's a good example from history about how this information about what you do, who you are, what your tendencies are, which come from those things like cookies and pixels and beacons that give that information out so that you can be more targeted. So that's really the threat in the use of those specific um, devices. Now, certainly there could be vulnerabilities within the web browser you're using where those pixels and beacons could actually be used to attack your system, but that's fairly rare. It's well, mostly used to find about information about you so they can target you in the future. So if I am sitting around surfing on my internet, can someone come along just out up there on the internet and scrape my browser history? It's quite difficult to do because that would require both a vulnerability and an exploit on your system. But the issue is that even if they don't have that, if the organization that you are surfing has been infiltrated, they can collect information about the user access that those organizations are collecting and the marketing organizations that are collecting information in order to be able to sell you things. If they're infiltrated, then they will have that information as well. So it's kind of a third level to get to you, but that's obviously happening because there's so much information out there. I mean, have you ever been on the internet on Facebook and kind of looked at an ad that came across there and then a couple hours later, you got an email or a text message from Amazon offering you the same product? Oh no, like while you're looking at it. Like while you're looking at later. it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that information is being immediately shared with advertisers all around, and therefore it's being immediately shared to the bad guys as well as the good guys. So that information is out there and can be collected about you so that it can be used in nefarious ways versus, you know, the ways, you know, the marketers would like to use them. I want to hand this over to Jerry, but can you give us a really short, 
quick description of what is the difference between a cookie and a pixel and a beacon? Well, a cookie is something that's stored on your machine that you can wipe out if you want that basically provides better access in the future to those sites that you have visited. But pixels and beacons are embedded directly into the web page that you're looking at. So they're actually part of the page itself mm-hmm. that as you you know move your mouse across those and whatever, they will send information back to the website that is hosting that. So pixels and beacons are similar in that regard where cookies are stored locally on your machine and the pixels and beacons are things that are happening actively on the web page you're looking at based on your activity and selections on that page. Okay, Jerry? Yes, and thanks again, Chet. This is really very informative to me personally and to our listeners, I'm sure. If I could just pursue the pixels and beacons issue One more time. As I read my Washington Post in the morning, I'm looking around at various articles. I'm making the assumption that the Washington Post, wanting to find out what is of interest to me, is keeping track of that. Is that a fair assumption? Sure, because they're trying to, um, in their particular case, let's say on the positive side, they're trying to make sure that the kind of information they're providing to readers like you is something that is of interest. And therefore, they can then direct, you know, what kinds of stories and what kind of articles and what kind of research they're going to do, and where they're going to spend their money to do that. That's going to be interesting to the broadest set of readers. So <laughs> I better watch out what I'm reading. Huh? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> now to a word that we've used quite a bit, and you're going to dig deeper into it, which is steganography. And you might speak about that and deep fakes and AI and how they're being used by cyber criminals when they're trying to impact someone's privacy. Could you give us a few thoughts on that? Sure. Let me introduce steganography to you in a way that's, let's say, somewhat non-technical so everybody kind of understands what it is. So steganography, the word itself, um, steganography is two forms. It's a Greek word, steganos, for covered and graphy for writing. So it's basically the translation is covered writing. And so the concept is happened um, some time ago, a couple thousand years ago, Demartus was exiled in Persia. And while he was there, he wanted to get back in the good graces of Sparta. So he wanted to tell them about a pending attack that was going to happen by the Persians against the Spartans. So he took the writing instrument of the day, which is kind of like a, an iPad, but actually it was a wax tablet that you know had a piece of wood that wax was embedded in that you could write your whatever you were writing during the day. It was the writing instrument of the day. So what DeMartis did was he actually peeled the wax off the tablet and engraved the message directly in the wood of the tablet and then covered it with a fresh coat of wax and then was able to sneak that tablet um, out of the castle by the centuries of the day because obviously if um, he was caught, it would probably be a fate worse than death. And that tablet made its way to Sparta to warn them of the pending attack. The importance of that story is it is the physical form of covered writing. In this case, it was covering the writing with wax that was embedded in the piece of wood. Problem is that if you translate that you know, 2,000 years ahead to today, the same attack works really well right now. So in other words, if I hide information using steganography in the advanced digital form by hiding information, let's say, in the pixels of an image, and I email it out of my organization into another organization, the current centuries of the day versus the ones that were guarding the castle, right? The firewalls, the content filters, the intrusion prevention systems, they don't aren't able to detect the content that was hidden 
within that particular image or audio file or video that I was actually sending, either by email or some other purpose. In 99.9% of the cases, that information will flow right by the century. So no different than what DeMartis did with steganography 2,000 years ago, that same method works today. And it is the fundamental method where folks are using that and embedding that in malware in order to hide the fact that there's malicious activity going on. So that information today, when you look in the modern world, malicious code is using steganography to communicate to, let's say, the command and control sites by posting an image that seems to be harmless. And then an image comes back to that Trojan or the piece of malware that also looks harmless. But inside that particular image uh, contains data. In the outbound direction, it's data that I'm exfiltrating from the organization and coming inbound are instructions and information that enhance the behavior of the malware. So when you look at this from taking it to the next level, talking about deep fakes, their purpose, on the other hand, which is different than steganography, is to convey misinformation. And they're typically combined with technologies like computational propaganda and echo chambers. And the whole purpose is the more times you see something from different store sources, you start to believe it. Thus, social media is filled with this kind of misinformation, fraudulent claims, and it is difficult then to separate truth from fiction. In some cases, this fraud makes it into the mainstream media, which furthers the false claims to also give it more support. So those two technologies are similar in nature. One is more obvious than the other, but some of the same techniques that were used to hide information within images for steganography, some of those same techniques are being used to create deep fakes. And one of the things we're investigating now is do these deep fakes not only contain misinformation, but do they also convey hidden content that could be dangerous? So as these deep fakes propagate, because in many cases they're interesting, right? More and more people then have those deep fakes on their systems. Very interesting. Now, you know, I'm wondering, in considering various approaches for us, I think Congress would be very interested in learning how technologies can play a role in advancing privacy. Do you think that uh, technologies can be used for that purpose? Can they be used to help people control the use of data or control the use of their biometrics? Yeah, and it's um, it's an important point, and I and I I try to explain this to my students because there's something that is somewhat misunderstood, and I, I need to make sure that they understand this because there's a very big difference between data privacy and data security. So data privacy is primarily related to the proper handling of data. In other words, how do you collect it? How do you use it? How do you maintain compliance? Where data security is all about access and protecting data from unauthorized uses, users or release and the use of authentication and access controls and encryption and key management to protect the data once we have it. So there's a distinction between those two things. And today, our thinking has changed just recently in the past several years of how we actually should think about our environments, especially as it's related to protecting data that is private. So here are some of the assumptions that we use today that are very different from what we used even just a couple of years ago. The first is that a breach is inevitable or it has already occurred and you just don't know. Second, 
we must carefully identify and model the data we're trying to protect, the assets that it's protected on, the applications that provide access to it, and the services that provide value and in order to protect the privacy. The next point is that we should assume that all requested access to private data may be malicious, that user credentials may have been compromised, that devices, infrastructures, and even trusted humans, maybe most importantly trusted humans, may also have been compromised. We need to apply least privileged access to every situation. And finally, we need to assume that the supply chain devices, software, and core infrastructures that we're using may be compromised. So the whole point of this is that we shift our focus to look at this thing from a zero trust point of view versus from a trusted point of view. So some of these examples of new thinking have originated from DARPA's active cyber defense cycle and most recently to NSA's zero trust security model that we're using today and implementing in systems. So we turn the tables on this. And if you think about it, when you look at it from this perspective, our approach to securing data from the data security point of view changes radically. We basically believe nothing. And we have to basically validate things in a much different way. So it's no longer, if you have the password, user ID and password, you're in. A lot more validation must be done before we allow access to that private information. That is, uh, it certainly enhances the paranoia in our society, but it is clearly required in light of all you've said. We'll talk. I'm going to pass it back to Jody, but fascinating. Thanks, Chet. Listening to all of this, I've heard a lot about how these technologies can be used to take our data and to get us in trouble and cause us problems. So I'm looking at saying, I want to use it to help me. So I know we have, for example, steganography. That is something that people can use to securely send information that they don't want detected. I loved your example. It's where you can embed a spreadsheet in a picture of Mona Lisa and send it out and it go right through the firewall and no one can see it. After 9-11, they discovered terrorists were embedding information on pictures they would post on eBay with stuff supposedly that was for sale. But yet you can use that in a positive sense. You can use steganography to send very sensitive information more securely. We can use AI in productive ways. We can use some of the monitoring technologies to make sure our people are protected. And, and if they get into, for example, when people are out on the road in fleets, they will monitor where they are just to make sure that they're safe and know what they're doing. But if we look at encryption, which is always the thing everybody brings up about, this is what you need to do you know, to protect this data from disclosure. But it's really hard to deploy. I mean, other than BitLocker putting it on laptops, which has become easy, it's hard to employ, deploy, and many companies don't have the expertise to properly manage the encryption keys, which can be almost worse than not deploying it. Are there developments on the horizon or maybe even already out there that are going to make the use of encryption easier? Just a couple of points. Just I want to respond to your opening there because I think it's really important. Uh, that folks understand kind of the distinction between encryption and steganography. Yeah, go ahead. So encryption is about keeping information private to only those folks that hold the keys to decrypt the data. 
right? Mm -hmm. It's relatively easy to identify, but you can't read the data. Mm -hmm. The point of psychography is to hide the mere existence of the data that you're trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. So it's very different in concept, but to your point, they can be used in order to be able to convey information in a very safe and secure way if you're using from a positive point of view. One of the problems that we have with encryption today, and even with access control and authentication, which are all part of this, is we tend to take the easy and cheap way out. And we all, always know that cheaper is not always better. I wanted to kind of bring up one example that, uh, from my experiences that when we're looking at things like multi-factor authentication today, MFA, mm -hmm. it has become commonplace, whereby you provide credentials for access and then you get a text or phone call right. um, to verify it's you, right? Everybody uses this in whatever, and they consider that multi-factor authentication. However, Considering this as true multi-factor authentication is fundamentally flawed. I should note that it was privileged to have worked on some very early projects in multi-factor multi authentication. And our definition of this was that true multi-factor is defined as something known, something held, and something you are. And the protection of the keying material is utmost important. So give you an example, obviously, when you look at this, uh, something you know is your user ID and your password, your basic yeah. credentials. Something held is some sort of device that's going to authenticate you to the system. In that particular environment, encryption is quite important in the keying material. The problem is, is that this goes back to the cheap is not always better argument, where in this case, the keying material that is the private keys that are used to encrypt the data, that particular and decrypt the data, if you're using it for signing or for encrypting, needs to be held within a cryptographic boundary that not even the inventor can gain access to that key. Today, most of the private keys that we use are in memory. So if memory is compromised, I can get the private keys. Right. Obviously, this happened with Heartbleed and some of the other things that have occurred recently. And so the important thing is, how do we protect the keying material? And we've had technologies for years to be able to do it. They tend to be more, more expensive than just using your phone to do it, but they are so much better because the keys won't be compromised. The third part of that equation is adding in something you are. And something you are has started to evolve. You know, something you are from the perspective of your biometric, your fingerprint or your retinal scan, those kinds of things. But also something you are is where are you? What time of day are you accessing the system? What are you doing at this particular point? Have you come from two different locations? in order to be able to do this, is going back to not trusting anything and basically validating several aspects of you trying to access this data or share this information is really important. So protecting that key material and revoking those keys if there is, in fact, a compromise. And so when you look at encryption from that particular point of view, it is more than an algorithm. It is how you actually manage those devices, how you distribute those devices, how you protect the keying material on those devices, and you use them for authentication. You use them for privacy of information that you're transferring. But it all comes down to where are the keys and how are the keys stored and how are they distributed, which is, to your point earlier, is one of the hardest things that we can do out there, but it's because we're cheap. But even secure email is hard. You know, sure. the clients don't like it. Everybody's always having to access something, then it goes away and it's like it's not there anymore. And I mean, we got to make this simpler. There's no question that, you know, we've had technologies that would do this for a long time. 
but we haven't implemented them in a way. And I, I go back to the fact that we want to make it as easy as possible, but by making it as easy as possible, we expose flaws because, like I said, the MFA example is such a good one because it's just comical that if somebody calls me up after I've tried to log in and I have to press one on my phone, that is more secure. It does provide two levels, but it's not really true multi-factor. Yeah. I want to touch on something really quick. Biometrics. So if someone steals my biometric fingerprint that I use for my laptop, can they replicate it? Can they make a fake one? Well, you probably are referring to a project that I did for the Air Force a number of years ago when we were looking at the ability to create fake fingerprints using thin film overlays. And we actually won an award from the Small Business Administration for doing this and demonstrating that this is possible. So the issue is that when you log into your system and you create your authentication with your fingerprint, it actually creates a minutiae um, of your fingerprint and stores and encrypts that, that minutiae. And so you can't take that minutia and produce the fingerprint. You can't go backward very easily, okay? It's, it's very, very difficult to do. But if I take a fingerprint from you that's either a latent print that you know, is on a glass or something, then I can actually create a thin film overlay that would act as you. And the advantage of the thin film overlay... Can you just add then on my phone to get on my phone? Right. So then you, then we could basically use that to basically log into your phone with that thin film overlay. The thin film overlay is a piece of latex. And the reason that it's the best approach is because by putting this over your finger, your finger still has the right temperature, it still has the right yeah. pulse, it has all of those physical characteristics. It's just we're replacing your fingerprint right. with mine and being able to do that. And that's completely possible. We showed that that was extremely effective. And all we need is a single latent print from you in order to be able to create effective thin film overlays to be able to use your fingerprint. Well, what are some of the practical steps that companies can take to guard against cyber attacks that are targeting personal data, including exfiltrations of that data? What are some of the practical things that people can do? Wow. If I could solve that in just a couple of minutes, I'd be calling you from my Gulfstream G8 <laughs> and not from, my, uh, from Zoom. Let me give you a couple Not of silver bullets, just a few yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. Let me give you one simple suggestion and kind of the leading edge thought that I see in this particular area. First of all, we must become more offensive. And let me be perfectly clear by what I mean. I am not talking about hacking back. Rather, we need to instrument our environments with deceptive technologies, for example, decoys, traps, lures, and misinformation. Let me give you a couple examples. So, for example, one of the problems with the exfiltration of data is when do we know that the data was exfiltrated? Mm -hmm. It could be months or years later that that occurs. So by using decoys and traps in misinformation within our infrastructures, we can more easily detect information that wasn't real but was exfiltrated. And we can also mark that information in such a way that we may be able to track or trace the adversary. So the concept is, is that what we're trying to do is get early indication and warnings of information that had been exfiltrated. And it would be better if that information that was exfiltrated was fake. So by creating decoys and traps and lures, it basically allows the attacker, if they are in the system, they could be, remember, they could be insiders or outsiders, to be able to go and take the trap or the lure or the decoy and exfiltrate information that isn't real. 
and easier to detect information that is not real because we know exactly what it looks like because we've instrumented it, right? And now we can basically detect that out there in the world on the dark web, et cetera. And once we do, we know that we've been compromised to some level and we can contain it, right? So remember, going back to the NSA zero trust model, the assumption is we are going to be breached, right? So we have to have a way to respond to that breach in a much faster and much more straightforward way. And one of the ways to do that is to instrument our environments with these deceptive technologies that will give us an edge to know that we've been breached at some point that we could actually then take actions in order to be able to defend against us. So that's one kind of leading edge thought in becoming much more offensive and not only defensive in nature in order to be able to get early indications and warnings that we have been in fact breached. Mm -hmm. Jerry, let me pass this back to you. Well, yes, and, you know, and we hear a lot about threat intelligence. What does it mean and how do threat intelligence be used to help protect against data breaches? I think it's a great point. Threat intelligence is obviously very popular. There's large organizations that are providing all kinds of threat intelligence that are out there, and it can be incredibly valuable. However, there are a couple really important caveats to threat intelligence. In order to use it effectively, the first thing that we must understand is our own environment. So, and the reason we need to know that is because we need to be able to evaluate whether or not the threat intelligence that we're getting is in fact potentially impacting our environment. So, for example, if a new threat is identified and it's for a specific operating system or a specific application or a specific capability, we need to understand whether or not our environment actually has that particular capability or uses that particular software or that operating system or that environment. It's very difficult. You may think, well, this is really easy to determine. But if we can determine that it is an impact to our organization, then the second step is, what do we do about it? You know, how do we actually respond to that threat? So I'll talk about something that Jody and I know very well because we worked together on Heartbleed a number of years ago. And the issue was that it was very difficult to determine whether or not the SSL, the OpenSSL library was actually on any of the systems that were in this infrastructure. It's even more difficult if that particular infrastructure happened to be in a critical infrastructure or a... Um, industrial control environment because you're not able to probe those like you can other environments because you could potentially cause damage by probing them to determine what you have. So you have to do this a priority. You have to understand deeply your own environment, every piece of software that's running, every service that's operating, every system, what it does, what its behavior, what its capabilities are in order to be able to assess the threat intelligence because there's this general concept that, hey, if there's a threat coming out, I'm going to patch for it. Well, that could be dangerous on its own right. And I'm not suggesting people don't patch. I'm suggesting they do it more carefully in order to be able to go into an alternate operating environment and verify that that patch is relevant to their environment and it's not going to cause more damage. Because in many cases, a patch will come out and it has its own set of flaws in it. But the fundamental issue is that we don't do enough fundamental work to understand our environment the behavior within our environment. We may know all the assets in our environment, every system and generally what it does, but we have not modeled this behavior. And so because we haven't modeled this behavior in the software that's running on that particular um, apparatus, 
it's very difficult to assess. So we have these pretty pictures that come from threat intelligence that tells us, you know, where this is. And some good information comes out of that, you know, what IP addresses that are being used as command and control so we can block those. So there's some simple things we can do. But the more sophisticated attacks and definitions of threat intelligence that come from advanced malware, we have to understand if our systems are susceptible. And if they are, the question is, how do we defend against it? So this goes to kind of pre-incident response because we haven't had an incident yet. But because this threat is there, the question is, how do we actually get our team together and sit down and say, okay, does this impact us? If it does, okay, what should we do? You know, how should we actually react to this without causing more damage? How do we actually raise the security posture of our environment against this particular threat without actually corrupting our own environment? And how do we do that safely and within a reasonable time frame? So I love the concept of threat intelligence, and it can be incredibly valuable, but it requires a lot of pre-work in order to be able to effectively use that threat intelligence. That's very, very helpful. You know. Uh... I'm going to suggest that uh, a lot of friends listen to this podcast because it's extraordinarily educational and very helpful. Thank you, Chet, for being with us today. This background is a very important background as we look at the development of national policy related to data protection, be it on the privacy side or on the risk side. And uh, I hope we have a wide listenership because it's really important. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I really enjoyed having the conversation. Lots of great questions. Thanks, Chad. Thanks for joining us this week on U.S. National Privacy Legislation. Make sure to visit our website, adcg.org, where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in what you heard today, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the podcast, that would help us out too. Also, you might want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Data and Cyber Governance Alert, which you can do right on our homepage. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode where we dig deeper into the possibilities of U.S. national privacy legislation.